And the reality is like people who read books on a subject, they are researchers, right? Even if they're not researchers by trade in that category, this is something they want to learn. Very few people are going to stop at one book. They're going to read several books around that same subject. So if there are other books already out on that subject, that's actually a sign that your book is probably needed, right? You should have a different angle. You should have a different hook from those that exist. But if you're writing the first ever book ever like yours, totally unique, you might want to ask yourself why. It's the Inspiration Place podcast with artist Miriam Shulman. Welcome to the Inspiration Place podcast, an art world insider podcast for artists by an artist, where each week we go behind the scenes to uncover the perspiration and inspiration behind the art. And now, your host, Miriam Shulman. Well, hello, my friend. This is Miriam Shulman your curator of inspiration and author of the book, Artpreneur, you're listening to episode number 236. Now, before we bring on the guest, I just wanted to remind you that the book Artpreneur is on sale. Holy cow, I am so excited. So I know you're listening to this in December and you do have like about six weeks to go before you'll actually get the book in your hands. But that's why I created an artpreneur affirmations class just for you. I've talked about this on other podcasts, but in case you're new to me, it's basically a potpourri of art journal technique and behind the scenes from the book. And I I read excerpts from the book and give you some tips for being a success as an artpreneur as well as behind the scenes. But I also wanted to let you know why pre-ordering the book is so important. So I would love to go on tour and meet you. I would love to come to your town or to a city near you. And the only way I can really do that is if the bookstores carry the book. And bookstores decide to carry the book based on the pre-orders. So what does that mean? The more people that pre-order the book, the more chances are that I'm going to be coming to a bookstore or, or maybe even a library near you. So I'm planning some things, but I can plan some more things if we sell more books. So I hopefully we can work together on this. And yeah, that's true. Even if you live in the UK or in Australia, my publisher is publishing in all English-speaking countries. So who knows? Maybe I'll come to your side of the world. Okay. So in order to get your hands on the pre-order goodies, and we've, we're cooking up some good ones. So in addition to the Artpreneur Affirmations, I also have a giveaway to do an in-person mastermind with me in New York City. So if you've ever dreamed of that, coming to New York City and also getting artpreneur advice and leaving full of inspiration and having me help coach you in person for the whole day on your art business, this is your chance and you can win an opportunity by entering, by ordering the book. So to order the book, go to artpreneurbook.com, enter your name, email, and order number, and that's it. Once again, artpreneurbook.com. And now on with the show. Today's guest 
Host of Nothing But The Words, today's podcast guest believes that everyone has a story to tell and knowledge and wisdom that someone else needs. She's written more books than she cares to count, and she's coached scores of authors through her coaching program, such as Authors Ignited, and helped them write their own transformative books to achieve their goals. She's also the coach behind my book, Artpreneur, which is why I'm so excited to have her here today. Please welcome to the Inspiration Place, Candace L. Davis. Well, hey there, Candace. Welcome to the show. Hey, Miriam. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I can't believe we finally get to talk again. It's been too, too long. Yeah. So I was explaining to somebody today how like, I just want to know if this is like you heard this from other authors, but maybe not these words, that writing a book is like being pregnant with an elephant. Okay, well, I haven't heard an elephant, <laughs> but being pregnant, absolutely, yes. And But when your book gets here, it will be as thrilling, I'm not even kidding, as your baby getting here. Yeah, but you know, like elephants have very long pregnancies. Yes. And I imagine that the labor <laughs> is very painful too. It's not your delivery is going to be so smooth and easy. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> I don't even know if you're going to recognize the book when it comes out. Like so much has changed since since we worked together. But that's the process, right? Yeah. That's the process, yeah, especially when you go through a traditional publisher, yeah. as yeah. you did. Yeah. The process is that it's not just your work at the end of the day. It's really a collaborative process. But that's also true with our work together. I mean, that's why I really enjoyed working with you. It was very important to me that I had an inclusive book. And so part of that was getting other people's input. And by inclusive, I'm not just talking about this color of our skin. It's just also like the experiences of other people. And you just can't do that with a self-published book working completely on your own. I mean, you can do, create a self-published book that has other people's input when you build your own team around you. Yes. That, yeah, which I think you help authors do as well. Is that right? I do. But I think the, place where people get confused is they see books published, right? They have their favorite authors, Brene Brown or Yamla Van Zandt, whoever it is. They have their favorite authors. They see those books published and they imagine that author sat in an office, worked for 12 months, sent it to a publisher and it was published. Or they imagine if that's a self-published book that the person did it all alone. And rarely is that the case. It's rarely the case. Even with traditional publishing, as you have seen, your editor who works for the publisher, right, has influenced and helped shape your book. If you had written it all alone, you would not have written the same book that no, you produced. No, absolutely not. But that was part of the reason that I wanted to go through this process. I knew the book would be better because of it. Yeah. I could not have written this book the same book that I wrote by myself. It's so. just that no one does though. Like, yeah. Because that's what we see in the movies, right? We see right. an author go off into a cabin and type a book and boom, it's there. But no one actually works that way. Every author, traditional or self-published, who writes a great book anyway, any author who you're probably following or have fallen in love with or whose book has impacted your life, they've had help, my friend. They've had a team help them. How did you get into helping other authors Oh, wow. So I started writing in literary fiction. Okay. Everybody's like, why would you do that? Because there's no money in that, right? Well, there is no money in that. It's not true. There's money in everything if you can figure out how to make it. But I started writing literary fiction and I started in writer's workshops. And 
I found that I loved helping the other writers in the workshops as much as I loved getting help. So when I got my second divorce and went out into the world and had not had a job in 10 years and was raising two girls who I was homeschooling and did not want to go back to banking, which is what I did before I had them. Instead, I decided, listen, I want to figure out how to do something of my own. And after a few missteps, (laughs) a few businesses that did not work out, I figured out that really helping people write great books is not just what I enjoy, but also, I mean, it's the gift. It's what I'm called to do. Oh, yeah. So I found Candace because I knew I needed help. <laughs> we all need help, right. Miriam. That's uh, the point. <laughs> well, I had a fantasy that the publisher was going to do with me what you did with me. And I know that some editors actually do have a different process. Let's put, just put it that way. Than mine does. So I was told when I signed my contract in June of, I don't even know what year it is anymore. In June of 21, oh my gosh, in June of 21, I was told, yeah, come back in six months when you're done. I was like, wait, it's not like in the movies where we're going to sit here, uh, you know, you're going to smoke a cigarette and tell me how to fix my book, you know, like while I had this, we have martinis with Right. I had this like <laughs> picture of like, I don't know, I had this like imagination of how that process looked. But it wasn't just your imagination. It's what we've been sold because to some extent, it's what used to be. Mm. It's what used to be in the early days of traditional publishing. Editors would work really closely with their authors, but the industry has changed so much that very few editors actually have the time to do that. They have so much on their roster and their catalog that they're trying to get done that very few have time to do that. It wasn't just a fantasy. Yeah. Okay. So I, I went into one of my book, uh, not book, um, one of my face, the Facebook groups. You know, I'm not even on Facebook groups anymore. Do you still go on Facebook at all? I go on Facebook because I do share my work there. But also, if I'm in a paid course and the group is on Facebook, then I will go for that. But I'm very rarely on there. I'm like on it less and less and less. Yeah. I used to go into these Facebook groups that would used to be the only interaction on Facebook. And I don't even do that. But anyway, I went into a Facebook group. I said, who has a book editor, a book coach that they like? And Rachel Luna, who I love, it's her book coming out soon. When's her book coming out? Rachel's book, I believe, is in February of next year. She has her big event in October. I'll see her there. She has a yearly event and she's having that and she's doing a pre-launch party at that event. Okay. So I believe it's a February launch date. Yeah. Rachel spoke highly of you and I listened to, she's great. And I listened to some of your podcasts. I was like, all right, my prayers have been answered. (laughs) Yay. I'm glad. I'm so glad. Yeah. I had a lot of fun working with you on your book. It was good. And it was not just about like editing. It was, I really needed like the cheerleading too. It's a big deal. It is. And I'm just saying this, not just for you, but for the people I know who are listening. There were a lot of times I was ready to give up, even when I was finished. Like, you don't even know this. There was like a time where like the manuscript was handed in. Yeah. And I even had gone through the developmental edit and I was ready to give them back their money. It's like, no, they don't even like my book. (laughs) You were not the first person to say that. Oh, really? No, you are not the first person to say that. I would say 
most of my traditionally published clients hit that wall at some point where they're just like, this is ridiculous because you don't anticipate how much back and forth there's going to be with your publishers, editors. So you have the developmental edit and you have a copy edit and you have all the things along the way. You don't anticipate that when you're sitting down to write your book. And you're thinking, well, but I had this whole outline and this whole plan of what I was going to write. And now they're asking me to change things. Forget about it. So you're not the first client who has said that to me. And even on the self-published side, people grossly underestimate how many times they need to revise their book with feedback from a professional. But to revise it, if you want something, you can actually be proud to have your name on something. This book is going to represent you out in the world, right? That takes many revisions to get to where you really want to put your name on it. Doesn't mean that what you wrote wasn't great to begin with, but your publisher and the editors who work for your publisher have a vision for what they know the marketplace wants as well. Yeah. There's a couple of things that was very interesting to me in terms of like my evolution (laughs) with this whole book. So one is like, there was like the push and pull of you know, when they want me to change something like, no, I'm going to, this is like my message. I'm digging in. This is an invitation for me to like go even deeper with this. And then other times it's like, yeah, but is my core message going to be lost if I don't listen to this feedback? Yeah. Am I going to alienate and piss people off because I don't see how the, what I'm saying could be offensive and then I end up helping less people? Mm. But at the end of the day, you have to trust yourself yeah. too, because you're going to get feedback all along the way. If you work with a coach, your coach is going to give you feedback. If you publish traditionally or self-publish, you still need an editor and that person is going to give you feedback. They are not always right. It's not even a matter of right or wrong. A lot of it is subjective. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to buckle down and say, listen, this is the hill. I'm not going to die on, but I'm going to plant my flag on and I'm willing to fight for this element of my book. Yeah. If it really represents you, if it really connects with your readers, I'm thinking about one particular chapter title you had in your book. (laughs) Do you remember? Was it Embrace Your Inner Weirdo? Yes, that was it. You know what? So, So that one... My agent did not like that chapter title, by the way. I don't think Michelle listens to the podcast. If you do, Michelle, I love you. But yeah, she didn't like that chapter title. But I have to tell you that I was looking at Amazon recently, and they have the preview pages. And so the publisher likes it because they picked that one as a preview page. So I think your audience is going to like it too. I think it will. But notice you could have just listened to your agent's feedback. Right. And, and that no, was early no one on. That was back you. in the proposal process. That yeah. was before we even like started working together. Yep. Yep. So you could have listened to that feedback. You could have pulled it out. You could have toned it down. You could have made it more, I don't know, socially acceptable, a little more vanilla. Yeah. But one, it wouldn't be you, right? That that's taking away some of your personality and part of way, what makes each book that really is a good book different is that we get the author in the book, not just the ideas, but the author's personality and the author's voice. Yeah. So now that that was one of my favorite chapter titles and that did not get changed. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I'm glad. Also sell happy endings, which like my husband's not thrilled with, like it's so dirty. (laughs) I love that. I know, but that's what it's about. Uh, (laughs) Poor husband. I know. He's so embarrassed by this podcast. Oh, well, my husband doesn't listen to it. 
to mine. He edits it and he doesn't even listen to it. So he just lets it all flow past him. So no, no, my husband doesn't listen to it either. But sometimes like thing he'll find out like that I've talked about something. And so he's paranoid that like I share more than what he's comfortable with. You know, if that makes sense. That's unfortunate because I'm sure I do the same thing, but it's all for the benefit of your listeners. That's right. Everything is content. Who said that? Everything is content. Everything is content. <laughs> you know, if I slip on a banana peel, I'm so sorry. So my brother is a, a writer as well. And we always oh, used wow. to worry, like now he writes for um, PBS or he's done segments for CNN. But my family was always in fear that he would become very successful like David Sedaris and share all our secrets and that has not happened. And said, I have become the person. You're the <laughs> one doing it. I'm the one the doing one it, right? I'm sure I'm like it's all hanging out. Well, my husband's a screenwriter. And so he understands. So he's coming from the artistic point of view, too. So he understands that, you know, everything's fair game. That's right. <laughs> I'm quite sure things have appeared in his screenplays that happened in our real life. Yes. That's okay. Yeah, there was like, I went to a book talk with Ian McEwen recently. So oh, nice. yeah, it actually, yeah, I'm trying to remember like what it was that I loved so much. But in his newest book, the wife leaves the husband to become an author, and then writes about their life. And he's very upset about like how he's portrayed in this book. And so the author as the character says, I don't have to explain to you how this works, you know, how fiction works. Some things get used that's real and some things are made up, you know. <laughs> that is the reality of fiction writing. It's also the reality of, of podcasts and reality of content on social media. Like, it's, this is the world we live in now, right? It used to be limited to just those few authors who were publishing books, but we're all creating content at this point. But also, what's very interesting, and you do talk about this beautifully in your podcast, I hope anyone who wants to write a book should definitely listen to your podcast, by the way. So even in the nonfiction book that I'm writing, I had to rely a lot on some of these creative writing techniques, like collapsing narratives in order to tell a story in a way that people want to hear it. They don't want to hear like, well, this happened and this happened. Like they don't need to get from A to Z. You can skip from M, you know, M to P sometimes they'll look at to, to make a, a stronger point or yeah. to make it more entertaining or whatever. I'm not saying to lie about things, but collapsing narrative is one of the things I know that you talk about. Yeah. When I, for a short period of time, I taught first grade and my students were all Spanish speaking students. They were lovely. I was in a town in uh, Texas and they would say to me all the time, they would want to tell me stories, right? Like kids do. And the story would just be, y luego, y luego, y luego, and then, and then, and then, and then, right? Which is a great way to get the cause and effect of your story. But it's like they would put in every single detail. If you have that friend who says, and then I said, and then she said, and then I said, and then she said, well, you don't want to hear that when a little kid is telling you that story. You don't want to hear that when your friend is telling you the story about her bad date. And you definitely don't want to read it in a book. And when you're reading a book, what you can do is just close it and walk away, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't have to pick it back up. You can't necessarily walk away from your friend, but you can close that book and walk away. So you don't want to bore readers by giving them every single blow, blah, blow detail that happened in the story. Easy fix. 
Uh, yeah. One trick that I learned recently, and I think I kind of do this intuitively anyway, is just like instead of replace the and with the but. So it, you want your flow to be blah, 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 but da, 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 da. Like that's how to tell a story that's more interesting. So you have contrast. Yeah. Create some something for their brain to be looking for you to change instead of them just predicting what's going to happen. When you can predict everything that's going to happen in the story the writer's telling, you don't necessarily want to keep reading because you already know where it's going. All right. So I want to ask, I'm curious about other authors you've worked with, not without saying, you know, who it is, but like, what are some of the biggest challenges first-time writers have who come to work with you? Oh my gosh. Okay. So one is too many ideas. They have so many ideas and they're trying to cram them all into one book. They can't all necessarily fit into one book. And so we have to really narrow down who is your book for? What is this book supposed to do for that person, right? What are you promising your readers the book is going to do for them? And then what is the book going to do for you? And it needs to, your idea and everything that supports it all needs to serve that person and serve you, right? And everybody wants to say, yes, I'm writing my book to help people and thank goodness you are. But also it has to serve you and your goals as well. So narrow down your ideas into one that fits those three things, your purpose for your reader and your purpose for you. That's a huge one. So interesting because I just interviewed Amy Porterfield and I asked her, what is the biggest mistake first time online class creators make? And she said the same exact thing, trying to put too many things into one course. But yeah. it makes sense because they're both really two different modalities for teaching. I mean, if we're talking about an, a nonfiction book right now, is that right? Yeah. And we all do the same thing. Like I do it. I took a, a class on speaking last year. And the first thing she said to me when I turned in my presentation was, this is too much. You're cramming too much in here that you're trying to teach in a 30-minute presentation or whatever it is. It's our instinct to want to do that. But at the same time, it's not always the right vehicle for what you're trying to say. So trim it back. And if you overload people, they're not going to remember most of it anyway. So you're not really doing them a favor when you overload whatever content that you're producing. Mm. Okay. So that's a big one. So trying to yeah. put too much in. So what would be another hurdle? I'm going to change the question slightly. So that was like, that's the biggest mistake. What mm -hmm. is the biggest mindset hurdle that first time authors usually have? I know what mine were. So I mean, probably the biggest one is, well, there's so many. Okay. So I'll yeah. give you a couple. Yeah. One is just like not believing they have the ability, the skill or the talent to write a book. And I'm sorry, but writing, yes, it's a talent for some people. It comes naturally, but it is a skill. Anybody could learn that. But I've had people tell me, well, when I was in law school, my professor told me I was a terrible writer. Or, well, when I was in sixth grade, I got an F on this essay and I've never forgotten it. They carry from previous experiences, this idea that they're not a great writer and therefore cannot write a book, forgetting that you can become a great writer. It's, these are just skills. It's a set of skills that you can develop. Another big mindset issue that I find people have is they're already in love with, I'm going to use the word guru, but obviously you know what I mean by that. I just mean a big expert, not a traditional guru. They're in love with what some guru says, right? So let's say they're a personal finance expert and they follow Susie Orman. They feel like they can't write a book because Susie has already said everything there is to say in this field, but you don't have Susie's experience. And if you go through Susie's books, I guarantee there's some elements that you disagree with, right? You're bringing a whole different experience, but they get blocked by the people that they're in love with. I've had so many people tell me 
they wish they could write like Brene Brown. Mm. I don't even like Brene Brown's books. Now, I like Brene Brown and her philosophies, but the writing just isn't for me, right? So if I have another author who's writing about shame and a writing style that reaches me, how valuable is that? Yeah. But they're not doing it because they feel like, well, I can't write it as well as Brene Brown. Yeah. I have that in my art community. Like I can't create this because like, let's say with a class, somebody else already teaches this or how is my art different than whatever. And to me, it's just like restaurants. Like I'm a big foodie. Are, are you a foodie too, Candace? So big. Yeah, yes. big foodie. Okay. So it's ridiculous. It's like there are, we already have a Mexican restaurant. We can't have another one. You know, like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Know? There's got to be 10 in a 30 minute driving distance from my house. Right. Like, and if you like Mexican food, you want all the Mexican foods. Yep. And especially like when it comes to self-development, I people who like self-development books, you know, always can hear it a different oh way gosh. because we haven't, we haven't started doing it yet perfectly. At least last and, I checked. And, and the reality is like, People who read books on a subject, they are researchers, right? Even if they're not researchers by trade, in that category, this is something they want to learn. Very few people are going to stop at one book. They're going to read several books around that same subject. So if there are other books already out on that subject, that's actually a sign that your book is probably needed, right? You should have a different angle. You should have a different hook from those that exist. But if you're writing the first ever book ever like yours, totally unique, you might want to ask yourself why. Yeah. Like, do we really want a book on the emotions of basket weaving? I don't know. I'm trying to make up something that's right. really ridiculous. I'm good without that. Like, and right. probably the world is good without that. So. Just to be very clear and vulnerable. Oh, I think my listeners have heard me say this in a million different times and are probably sick of it. I had severe imposter syndrome throughout yeah. the writing. I, Like I said, even when I was done, I was ready to hand back my book advance. Oh, they don't like my book. But that's totally normal, especially for the first time that you're writing a book and you're going through a traditional publisher. So there's all the pressure of meeting their approval as well. It's perfectly normal. Why would you feel 100% confident in something you've never done before? You would be superhuman if you actually felt that way. But what's really interesting is now that I've written the book, I used to use a lot of copywriters to help me with my emails and my business. Now I'm like, I've written a book. <laughs> What's an email? I could do 20 of them right, right exactly. now. Exactly. And then it's like I had the, the swipe file is called my book. <laughs> like I don't need I don't need to go look at what XYZ guru has written to see you how don't. I don't. I just like, okay, what did I say in chapter nine? <laughs> and let me just say, so here's one thing I loved about your book because I run into a lot of experts, especially experts like you who have courses and coaching programs and things like that, who are afraid to give too much in their book. Not in the way of like, they don't want to be too broad, but they don't want to go too deep because they're afraid, well, if I give it to them in the book, why would they ever hire me? Why would they ever take my program? Why would they ever get coaching from me? And you really gave like the promise of your book can be met by doing the things in your book. Oh, yeah. And then one Period. of the things that, which is why I'm excited actually for you to, to see the new version of the book, like how much has changed. So like, there's, I know, like so for people who can't see Candace, she made a grimace. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm I excited, was, but I'm no, also, you know. No, I think she was wondering, do I really have to read it again? I read no, it like, so, I like five times. 
That's what I'm thinking you're thinking. Not at all. Oh my gosh. Like I have to read my book again because I don't remember what I wrote. People interview me. So they're like in chapter three. I was like, what was chapter three? And now when I used to interview authors and they wouldn't remember, I would assume that they had ghost written it. (gasps) No, but you know, you see how much your book has changed. Yes. And not only that, it takes years to write. Like who remembers what I wrote two years ago? Not me. Exactly. Right. Like maybe that's the part that I didn't edit recently. So one thing that that changed quite a bit is there were things that kind of I took on as this is the way it is because this is my experience. And I got a lot of pushback, appropriate pushback with a lot of the editors, like, can you back this up? So I had to do a lot of research to back things up. And also things changed a lot as we all know, in the last three years. I mean, people's shopping behaviors has changed a lot because of Amazon, because of the pandemic, because of George Floyd and the social justice movement. So it's like there was so much that happened in that book between the time you said goodbye to it and I wrote versions, whatever, two, three, and four, like because I had to go and find the research to back it up. It's like, oh, actually, this this is a whole nother step. Like, this matters. This is important for the book. Oh, yeah. Like, you think you and I are the only ones who shop with our our values? I was like, no, there's a lot of research in the book backing this up. Like, this is the conscious consumer is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But okay, so that's exciting to me on a couple of levels. One, it sounds like the changes you made, because sometimes people feel like the changes their editor pushes them to make don't make their book better. In fact, they think it makes it worse. But it sounds like you feel good about the changes. There was a few things that I took out that I'm not going to say I regret because I barely remember what they were. But like, yeah, there was a few chances I was like, maybe I didn't need to take that out. But I put a lot of stuff in that definitely made it better. And one thing, Candace, that I didn't know that totally surprised me. Okay, so I thought we just write a book as long as we want, whatever it is, it is. I found out that they decide on the day they write that check that the book advance, how long my book is going to be. And it's 240 pages. And if you turn on in 260 pages, they're making the font size smaller. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is a, <laughs> like, this is a business, if we recall. <laughs> like, so, and they're paying for those pages that they're putting in that book. This is a, one, they know what their readership wants, right? In terms of how long a book this particular audience wants. But it's a business, my friend. You increased their cost by increasing the page number. No, you didn't because they made the font smaller. So you did not have more pages. Right. So like I saw somebody's book whose font size was too small and I was very unhappy and, and they designed it. And of course, I insulted the, pe- the very p- same people who was like, please don't let my font size be this small. <laughs> and, they're like, and I realized, oh, my foot is way up my mouth right now. And then I like had to double back and be extra nice to all these people. Um, you You didn't know you didn't know my I did know know. I was like should have known better than to say that sometimes I just say things oh it's such a disease I'm pretty sure we all do (laughs) (laughs) was there a point that I was getting to before that had something to do with well we were talking about your changes and that were you happy with the changes yeah so there were a few things they wanted me to change where I was just uh, hell no and one of them I don't think you were involved in this where one of the, um, I had, so there were several editors. There was a developmental editor. There was a copy editor. There was Linda, who says her only title is editor. So I call her my hot girl editor. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, 
the developmental editor didn't like one of my sub. Oh, and by the way, thank you for helping me do all the like, you know, this is the heading one and this is the sub. Like they were such sticklers on that. Yeah. What's the it's subhead? boring stuff. But it's boring stuff. It. But yeah. So one of my headings or subheads, I forget what it was, was keep it kosher. So my developmental editor, who actually is also Jewish, said, I don't think most people will know what this means. And I said, I don't care. And well, then, first of all, is that really true? I mean, it's a pretty common saying. I'm not Jewish. Okay. Well, the think. copy editor, the copy editor came back, who I don't think listens to the podcast. The copy editor came back and said, I don't know what this means. Please get rephrase. out of town. Get out of town. Right. I know. So I went back to Linda. I was like, what should I do here? She's like, well, I don't know if this should be a subhead. You know, it's like it was some sort of comment like that. Like it wasn't like she had a problem with the hierarchy of it. So I said, I'm not taking it out. If you want me to explain what kosher is for middle America, I'm happy to do that. And then I made some snarky remark about, okay, now you know what kosher means in case you didn't watch enough Seinfeld. I mean, like, I can't help you. I mean, I think I think it's in a lot of Seinfeld episodes. I, right? I mean, I'm just thinking even middle America gets TV, right? Like, right. Like, I think kosher is in the urban dictionary. I don't think it's that obscure. I just that that's mine. I wouldn't even have occurred to me that that would have been something they had an issue with. But that's interesting because it just depends on who your editor is. That's right. And there were a couple of things they had an issue with where I was like, okay, yeah, all right, this could be sensitive, and I'm okay changing it. But that one I wasn't because I felt like taking that out. You know, I'm being inclusive. I don't need to whitewash myself. It waters down your own voice. Right, exactly. So, it waters down me and it waters down anybody who's trying to express themselves and embrace their inner weirdo, which is like the whole point of my book. It's like you're supposed to embrace this. I also am not resistant to readers looking things up if they don't know what right. they are. Right. So they can either skim over it, like, I don't know what she's talking about, keep exactly. it kosher. So I'm just, right. Or there's Google at your fingertips. You know, this is not the old days when you had to go to the library and, and get a dictionary. You just Google it if you really don't know. You right. could find out what it means. So, you know, on that type of thing, one, why water down your voice? Two, I highly doubt that most of your readers will be unfamiliar with the term. And three, if they are, they are free to look it up. That's right. Like, I don't get Game of Thrones references because I don't Me watch either. that. <laughs> I'm I, I, I don't watch it. But at this point, I almost get the references because everybody's talking about it. <laughs> exactly. So like, right? No. It's fine. I don't watch that. Yeah, so and I'm they, glad you kept it. Yeah, and they had a problem with, I had too many Harry Potter references, too. Oh, you know, I would never have a problem with that. Some <laughs> ridiculous Harry Potter fan. So I'm the worst person to give you feedback on that, because I'm like, keep it out. No, I know, you liked it, too. I was like, eh, I don't know, I'm leaving it in. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, so that's a movie franchise that appeals to the weirdos. So yes, right. it definitely had mass appeal, but right. I remember going to midnight premieres of the movies and midnight releases of the books with my kids. And it was all the theater kids and the artsy kids who were there. So that's who's going to be reading your book. It's going to be those kids who were the artsy kids and are now adults, right? That's it right. It doesn't matter if they were kids at HP, but they were kids who were the nerdy kids, the artsy kids, the weirdos, they're going to be reading your book. So they will get and appreciate those Harry Potter references. Yeah. And there's like other Easter eggs for like the super nerds out there. Yes. So you, you, you get deep on your literary Easter eggs. I do. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm explaining the Easter eggs will be like in my book bonuses. So I'm put together an art journal. So each 
don't know if you remember this, Candace. Each title is a, like a mantra, like kind of tells them what to do. Like it's everything's an action verb. Embrace your inner weirdo. Keep marching forward. That's the last chapter that had a lot yeah. with existentialism. So like my, I create an art journal page. So it'll be fun for people who are actually visual artists. I'll share some of the technique, but I'm also going to give them like a little bit of the stuff that I'm not, I didn't completely share in the book. So, yeah. So how will they find your bonus content? Oh my gosh, you're like, it's like I scripted you on like how to help me promote my book. (laughs) So we're trying to put together a vanity URL, which I'm not really sure I know the point of it at artpreneurbook.com because it's not any easier to spell or say than shulmanart.com forward slash book. But uh, both will work and they will all be in the show notes, along with, this is probably a good place to start wrapping up, along with all of Candace's links. So nothing but the words, her podcast. And Candace, would you please tell people about your program, Authors Ignited? Yeah, I created this program because I wanted to give authors what I didn't have when I was struggling to write my first book. And a few of those things are community. That's like at the top. I was shocked by what a difference community made for me as an author when I was writing my first book. So we have community there. We also have a place for you to get compassionate accountability, right? So we will help you stick to your writing goals. And I have a whole process in there that walks you step by step from validating your book idea all the way through writing. So we meet regularly for group coaching calls and we meet regularly to write together and to get feedback on your work and this author's ignited. I love that. And just so everyone knows, I worked with Candace as a one-on-one client, which you have information about that on your website as well. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it's- just CandaceLDavis.com. And if you really don't do the group thing and you're looking for one-on-one help, you can find it there. Okay. Or if you think you're special like I am. <laughs> <laughs> you are special. I actually did wish I had a community. It's just that I was under a deadline. So that's, you know, I knew I had, I needed the full support, but. And your deadline was tight. So you had to get it Very tight. I do have, I do have now author friends. I think it's super important to surround yourself with people who are doing the same things as you and having the same struggles and also celebrating the wins. Like it's really encouraging to see other people succeeding. So I I think a group is extremely valuable. And Candace was such a good resource for me. It's not just about the editing to just really understand how to be kind and compassionate and to give critique in a way that, yeah, so I was not prepared when the criticism was less kind when it came back later, by the way. Not from me. <laughs> no, not from Candace, but and not from Linda either, just so you know, some of the other unnamed people that we like. It happens. People, it happens. Anyway. And by the way, don't forget if you want to win that free mastermind in New York City experience with me, which is part of the Artpreneur Accelerator experience, all you have to do to enter is go to artpreneurbook.com order your copy, your paperback copy of Artpreneur, enter your name, email, and order number, and you'll be all set. What last words do you have for our listeners before we call this podcast complete? Well, my last words would be whether you're writing a book or you're doing some other kind of art, right? Whatever you're creating, find a way to do it from a place of joy and desire. 
in the writing community, particularly the literary fiction community, there's a whole thing about how, you know, this is this painful thing that we do because we're called to do it, but we have to do it, but we suffer through it. You know, you're pouring yourself on the page and it's so painful and it can be that, right? But I find it much more exciting and much more pleasant when you can focus on changing your thoughts about writing so that you can write from a place of joy and desire. And that applies to any art that you're creating. Okay. I love that. All right, my friend, thank you so much for being with me here today. If you enjoyed this episode, wherever you're listening to it, take a screenshot of it and tag us. Candace, what's your handle on social media? At Candace L. Davis. There you go. Candace L. Davis. And it's Candace, like C-A-N-D-I-C-E L. Davis. Ice cold. Yes. Okay. Oh, okay. I <laughs> love that. <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm at Shulman Art. S-C-H-U-L-M-A-N-A-R-T. We would love to have you spread the love. And I'm sure you know somebody who would benefit from the show. All right, my friend, thank you so much for being with me here today. I'll see you the same time, same place next week. Stay inspired. Thank you for listening to the Inspiration Place podcast. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash shulmanart, on Instagram at shulmanart, and of course, on shulmanart.com.